This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. I appreciate you tuning in. We're back in Hebrews chapter 4, but we're dealing with a new topic of Hebrews chapter 4. We didn't get to the last few verses because this is where the thought pattern shifts a little bit. So I'm going to look at verses 12 and 13 to begin with, which connects our old uh, lesson that we did a week ago with the new thoughts that are forthcoming. So this is Hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13. He says, For the word of, the God, word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And verse 13, the end of that, that phrasing is a little strange in the um, New American Standard, I think is the version that I was reading from. Uh, but with whom we have to do just means we're going to be all, all of us accountable to God. In the end, we all have to answer to him. And so these verses bridge our previous discussion with the one that is forthcoming because remember last week we talked about, and in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer emphasizes the need to be diligent to enter God's rest in verse 11. And, uh, you know, he's been talking about passages which refer to the Sabbath and the Sabbath rest and how those ultimately didn't point to a specific day that God intended, but ultimately to an eternal uh, permanent home with him, a rest, a rest with him and peace with him. And the Hebrew writer is doing what he has done previously, and that is draw our attention back to our need for the word of God if we're going to uh, diligently seek him or diligently enter that rest or be careful to enter that rest as he's commanded. We're going to need the word of God. And so that's what he talks about here in, in verse 12. Remember in chapter 2, he said, let us um, pay much more attention to that which we have heard. So as he makes these points, you know, in that case, it was with regard to Jesus's superiority to angels. He again ends with pay attention to God's word. And he again here is, is saying the same thing, pay attention to God's word. Uh, but he does something else also in, in verse 13, after he's describing uh, the word of God and its effects, its power. He says, uh, again, there's no creature that is hidden from him. And we all have to have an, you know, we're all going to be accountable. And we need to take advantage of the blessings and receive the blessings that God is extending to us through his son. And that's where the writer is headed now. He's going to reshift his attention to Jesus. Uh, specifically in his role as high priest. So that's what we're going to talk about. So the again, the I, but I want to begin with where the Hebrew writer begins in verse 12 in talking about the power of God's word and how it should not be underestimated, how it exposes our character and it exposes our intentions and, and even our very our thoughts. And he's reminding us that every, we're just we're vulnerable. We're just completely vulnerable before God our creator who is going to call us to account in the end. And he doesn't want us because that, that is to be the reality for us all. He doesn't want us to have any delusions. He doesn't want us to have any delusions about who we are or about who he is or his expectations or our sinful state before him. And so he's reminding us of that, that we are fallen sinful creatures and we can't, we can't be left to ourselves. We can't direct our own path. Because we do, you just look at the world around us and you see the, the, you know, the horrors and the violence and the war and the crime and 
you know, just just if left to our own moral path in life, we're going to botch it terribly. And so Jeremiah says, the way of man is not in himself to direct his own steps. But God is perfect in every way. And he should be trusted, and his word should be trusted, and his word should be consulted, and his word should be obeyed. And every aspect of our lives should revolve around what he says, because he created us and he knows what's best, and ultimately we're going to answer to him. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And there's many folks, I believe, who understand those passages and even would agree with those passages and have them memorized. They know what the Bible says about human nature and about sin and um, all these things, myself included, yet we still fall short. We know what the righteous standard is, but we still find ourselves in need of forgiveness. We still need pardon. And this is something that John addresses in 1 John 1 as he's talking to Christians there, just as the Hebrew writer is here reminding them of this fact that they need continually to... Uh, they, for the Hebrew writer, from his perspective, he's, he's showing that we continually need Jesus as a high priest. We continually need someone interceding for us. And John um, is not so much of a different thought in First John 1 that we need to continually confess and repent of our sins. And then Jesus Christ, our great high priest who is faithful, will forgive us of all unrighteousness. First John 1, verses 8 and 9 and 10. And so this is where the Hebrew writer is taking us in verse 14. He says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we know what the Bible says. We know God is real. We know what his expectations are, that we need to rebuke sin in our lives and be done with it. Yet we still fall short. um, And his word is constantly exposing us and showing us where we need to repent and how we can be reconciled to him. But we need Jesus' sacrifice. And we should be thankful that we have this great high priest who is able to forgive us and able to intercede for us. And that gives us hope and gives us reason to hold fast to our confession. In verse 14, right? Not just give up, right? Not just go the other direction, unfortunately, that so many people have taken that didn't understand the power of forgiveness in, in Jesus Christ and the mercy that he extends. That, uh, well, yeah, I know I know the difference between right and wrong, and I know even what some of God's standard is, but I failed to do it, and so, you know, we just throw our hands up in the air, and we walk away. And the Bible is saying, no, there's, you don't need to do that. It's not the system that God set up. There is forgiveness with him, but only through his son. And only through his son can we hold fast to him. Without Jesus' sacrifice, none of us have any hope. Christians included, those who have accepted, understand, and believe his sacrifice. We we continually need him to intercede for us. We don't have any hope, regardless of how many God's commands we keep. Jesus says in Luke 17, even if you keep all of even if you do all that which I commanded you, at, at the end of the day, we are unworthy slaves, he says. You shall still say we are unworthy. We have only done that which we ought to have done in verse 10. So what we need is forgiveness, and that forgiveness can only come through his blood. And that truth is just repeated throughout Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, it it foreshadowed this, that the penalty for sin is eternal death, everlasting separation from God, and blood, a blood sacrifice, was the only means that God revealed to, to use to forgive those sins. 
in Hebrews 9.22, the writer touches on this point. He says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, we could spend days trying to explain and debate and discuss why why that is. I have some ideas, but the bottom line is, is that I can, and I don't believe anyone can fully explain why without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But I must believe it, and you must believe it nonetheless. And we have to be satisfied with what God has revealed. Let God let God have his reasons. Let God organize truth. Let him reveal truth. Our responsibility is to believe and obey, obey it. Trust his judgment. And this is what he says. And the closest verse that comes to explaining um, any why or wherefore is Le- Leviticus 17.11, to my knowledge, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God says, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so it's a it's a life, life for life exchange. And Jesus, our great high priest, entered once and for all into the holy place. In in Hebrews nine twelve, it says, Not by means of blood of animals, goats and calves, but by his own blood. And in so doing he secured eternal redemption. And so there it is again. It was Jesus' blood that he offered, which is to say his life, right? That's what he poured out. Blood is representative of his life, according to Leviticus 17. So he poured out his life. He offered it. He gave it to save me and to save you from our sins. Once and for all time. And it is his blood that still cleanses all who would turn to him in obedient faith. Hebrews 5.9. He is the source of salvation to all who obey him. Again, I emphasize verse 12 of Hebrews 9. He entered once for all, securing eternal redemption. And now we have this great high priest and king who loves us and who cares for us. And he's offered this sacrifice for us. And he's given us every reason to hold fast our confession. In fact, in a sense, he's made us able to hold fast to our confession. Not that he's forcing us uh, somehow or we're like little puppets and he's pulling the strings. But what I mean is that scenario I described earlier. If if we know what God's righteous standard is and we also know um, by objectively and honestly studying his Bible that we've fallen short of that standard, well, then what reason do we have to hope? We've already failed. There is no hope. But with Jesus, there is, because there is forgiveness in him. And so I can know and I can understand, well, God God knows, and I know that I've fallen short of his standard, but God also knows that I desired to follow his standard, and I'm still trying to follow his standard, and only he can provide the means to remove my, my screw-ups and my sin and, and how I've fallen short. And he did that in providing his son. And so that is what I mean when I say he enables us to hold fast to our confession. Because without Christ, there is no hope. We just we might as well give up, in other words. That's the only alternative. But because we have this great sacrifice, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. And God says, it's, I'm not even going to remember it anymore. Your sin, it's gone as far as the east is from the west. And he is faithful to his promises, and he always has been, and he always will be. And he doesn't want to see anybody perish. He has no satisfaction in the death, death of the wicked. Second Peter three to nine, uh, uh, Second Peter three and verse nine. God wants all men to repent 
and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's not willing that any should prepare, should perish. Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so that should give us great hope that this God who puts his righteous standard before us was willing to become a man and also experience temptation and weakness with us. Not that he needed to. He perfectly understood it anyway, but he did it to show us how much we how much he loves us. And to give us confidence in Him. And this speaks to His greatness. It speaks to His love. That He would identify with us as a man. And then live as a man without ever sinning. And show us what we're capable of. But none of us will ever achieve. We need forgiveness. He was tempted in every way. Every angle. He was persecuted. He had evil heaped upon him. He was propositioned by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, but he never failed. Not once. And so he was perfect. And he lived a perfect life. Excuse me, not so that his perfect life could be put in place of ours, but he lived a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice. A lamb without spot, without blemish. That would be sufficient for all time. But he knows what it is to be touched with our weaknesses. He knows what it is to be human, yet he overcame and he, and he shows us the way. Remember, the Hebrew writers already called him the, the archegos, the, uh, the captain of our faith. There's not a single word in English, again, that captures all of what that, that means, but it's like captain, author, uh, guide, uh, all, all of these things. He's showing us the way, and that should give us confidence. Verse 16. Therefore, verse 16 of chapter 4, that is, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So how often do we remind ourselves of this fact? Do we have this confidence? Do you have this confidence? That he knows the particulars, not just of human weakness in general, but the particulars of your specific weakness and my specific weakness and my specific thought patterns and my uh, uh, specific uh, behaviors and knows exactly how I can overcome those particulars. Do we have confidence in him that he will follow through and mercifully deliver us in a time of need? As he promises in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. And as high priest, Hebrews 5.2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. We see God appointed Jesus for this very purpose, to intercede for us in matters of God. So that takes us to the through the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, but it's, it's still the same thoughts. You know, chapter breaks in the Bible aren't perfect, but this is still part of the same uh, thought that the Hebrew writer is developing here. We can approach the throne of grace because we have this sympathetic high priest in Jesus Christ who is merciful and forgiving and who understands our weakness. And he was appointed for this very purpose that God designed from the beginning that he knew that we would need this individual to intercede for us and to be um, to, to offer himself as a sacrifice. And he 
it wasn't that Jesus just showed up and just and just decided this for himself. He knew this from all eternity. This is what his purpose was going to be. He didn't, and the Hebrew writers making the same point that Jesus he wasn't just a man looking to glorify himself uh, and 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 get this honor because from the Jewish perspective, the Old Testament perspective, that it would be an honor to serve in this kind of position, this go between mediator between God and man. But Jesus didn't take that honor for himself, verse 5, but it was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, meaning you will be both priest and king, just as Melchizedek was in the book of Genesis. So uh, Jesus as basically the the writer the writer is saying God is the one who gave Jesus this this honor. It was always his plan, his plan. Um, and he's quoting from Psalm two seven, and Paul also does this um, in Acts thirteen thirty three. He applies that same passage to Jesus. The Hebrew writer here is is, is emphasizing Jesus's role as high priest. Paul in Acts thirteen is using it to emphasize his kingship. Uh, because he is both. So long before you and I were ever here, the point is God determined he knew that he would send his son to be the offering for our sin. And not only this, but he determined that he would save, uh, that he would serve as our high priest forever. So long as we are doing what our end of the covenant entails, loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, continually striving to take up our cross daily and serve him. And he comes to our aid in our struggle against sin. That is love. And the Hebrew writer goes on to show what Jesus suffered uh, to fulfill this role. In the days of his flesh, he describes here, he showed his faithfulness in verse 7. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And so as a perfect example, the Son of God, he knew and understood the importance of praying to his Father in the context of suffering, in the context of struggle. That's what he's doing here to the point that he's, that he's weeping, that he's, he's, it's with loud cries and, and tears. Jesus understood his need to do this. How much more should we? Do we seek our Heavenly Father in those same difficult circumstances continually? In the most trying time of his life, Jesus sought the comfort of his father's assurance, and he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus was and is the Son of God, but living as a man and identifying with us, he humbled himself before God in every way that a man should. And he revered, he honored, he he respected his father, even though he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul says in Philippians 2.6. That's humility. And he received this honor as high priest and gives us a perfect example of prayer along the way. He showed us how to obey perfectly. In, in verses 8 and 9, as the writer continues, he says, Although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, verse 9. So he, he set an example, again, that we must ever strive to follow. 
showing that we should obey even in the deepest sorrows and sufferings. Sometimes folks want to use sorrow, suffering, tragedy, persecution as an excuse uh, not to be faithful. Well, I can't do it because X, Y, and Z, or things are so terrible, or let me deal with this issue first, and then I'll get back to um, prioritizing spiritual things. But that's not the pattern Jesus set. The pattern that Jesus set shows us that the most valuable lessons of obedience are learned during affliction, not after. And the writer doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know how to obey uh, before, but this was again the this was the God determined path for him to take to become high priest. It was to experience weakness of humanity as a man, be tempted in every way, and to learn through suffering. And that shouldn't be um, strange to us at all. In the way that you know Jesus acquired wisdom, in the way that men do also in Luke two fifty two, he grew in stature and wisdom, and in, in favor of God. Again, he was showing us the way. All for our benefit, not for his. It was all for us. So that we could be forgiven, so that we could have hope of eternity, and that we could be sure we have this great priest. And a priest in Scripture is just someone who intercedes between man and God. He's a mediator figure. That's how the Bible uses that word. In, in the old days, in the patriarchal days, it was the head of the household that fulfilled that uh, that role. If you remember, if you remember reading the book of Job, and and Job lived roughly around the time of Abraham, but you look at Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac too. The, those heads of families, what they would do is offer sacrifices, and I point to Job specifically because he says he would offer sacrifices for his children, on behalf of his children, because he was afraid that they may have sinned in, in their hearts. And so it was an intercessory kind of role. And then when the law of Moses comes along, you get the Levitical priesthood. And now in the new covenant, you have this priesthood of Christ. Wherein he intercedes for all of his people, but all of his people also serve as priests. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. They are part of a royal priesthood. But all that to say that was not for his benefit, it was for ours so that he could save forever those who draw near to him. Hebrews 7.25, listen to this, because he ever lives to make intercession for them. I believe what we can say here is that God has done everything possible to keep people from going to hell. God has done everything possible to make the way to heaven and eternal peace and comfort open to all people. He gave his own son to suffer in the flesh, to die on a cross, raised him from the dead, and exalted him to a place where he may serve, continue to serve his people, and bless all people who draw near to God through him. Now it's up to us to make the next move. It's up to us to make the decision to come to him, to gain heaven and escape hell. And so the next move is ours. And if I don't make it and you don't make it, then in the end, we will have no one to blame but ourselves. 
So why not come to the great high priest and find forgiveness of sins through his blood?